Welcome to TalkScript, a superset of a podcast about JavaScript. The presenting sponsor of TalkScript is SitePen, a JavaScript consultancy helping companies improve their apps, tools, and teams. Check it out at sitepen.com. Let's find out if TalkScript is your type of podcast. Hello, and welcome to TalkScript. I'm your host, Brian Forbes. I have with me today, Paul Shannon. Howdy, all Nick Nisi. Hello. And Neil Roberts. It's an honor just to be nominated. It's an honor to have you, Neil. We are back after quite a long break. And so today we are going to talk about um, the breakdowns that we see in responsibility. And, and particularly, we're going to talk about siloing single points of failures in engineering, software engineering, of course. Um, but we're going to uh, talk about what happens and, and how we can kind of work around those or even put things in place to fix those. Sounds good to me. I know uh, as we were prepping for the show, uh, one of the discussions we led with was the idea of software as engineering and how that kind of dictates a lot of the things that we're going to discuss. Yeah, engineering is is kind of this practice that we sometimes allow to break down. Like we don't really give it good attention as we're focused on like getting things out the door sometimes or trying to finish a feature. But those breakdowns kind of end up building up in a process. Brian was talking about how a lot of the ideas of engineering aren't directly applicable to software, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. And I'm going to disagree with some of that. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. That's fair. We were talking about like uh, reproducibility, right, Brian? Yeah, a little bit. While there is a lot of reuse, a lot of repetitive nature of what we do, there's still great variables in in a lot of what we do because it seems like each project that we tackle has different requirements and different things that come up we've got an ever-changing landscape of of different browsers i mean we're always trying to support new features and also while supporting those new features make sure that we're falling back to old features and some of these things are brand new territory so it's not the same as and and this isn't meant to denigrate in any way but it's not the same as stamping out gaskets which which i did you know a while a while back you know how long it takes for the machine head to come down and go up and and so you know you can get x number of parts out in y number of hours so are you questioning my estimates, Brian? <laughs> I'm questioning my man. I am the worst estimator. You can you can ask Nita. She, for a long time, would add ten to fifteen percent onto my onto my estimates because she knew I was terrible. The Brian factor. It was the Brian factor. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but that's that's kind of standard though. Like any estimate you have, oh, for sure, for sure, has risk associated with it. Absolutely. And like absolutely. whenever you're estimating something, if it's a process that you've done before and is well defined. Like if you're shoveling out a hole, like each shovel full is going to be different. You're going to dig at a different sure. angle and yeah. a different oh, depth yeah, yeah, and everything. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then, you know, with, with something like that, then you, you do have some risks, risks there. Sorry. Where, you know, let's say we're shoveling and then we hit a layer of concrete that we didn't know was there. Obviously, then we have to go get the jackhammer and, and things change. Right. But it seems like. In the software world, especially the web world, there's always these new factors coming in. I mentioned kind of browsers just seem to iterate so fast. And not that I want that to stop, but it seems like we've always got these new things to deal with. And then old browsers kind of dropping off and it's just kind of like this this ever-changing target that where like may, the hole just keeps getting deeper and deeper, you know, the, where... Would you say you're fatigued by it? Well, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe maybe that's the best place to start off with, right? Is that in a lot of teams, there's usually one person who is most up to date and follows most closely kind of state of the art, right? Yeah, for sure. I I would agree with that. Or is most senior or or anything else like that. I mean, we just saw that with the the Iowa caucuses where you had one... (laughs) Watch you had it. one senior Watch developer. <laughs> eh, well, you know, call it as it is. You had one really senior yeah, developer no, that was leading a team to try to put together software for the Iowa caucuses. And what happened is it failed to scale, essentially, because there's a whole number of issues around funding those applications properly. 
but it was also a case where you had one senior engineer leading a bunch of newer engineers that couldn't move autonomously couldn't operate on their own as as much as was necessary for right, that specific right. application yeah for sure yeah that's tough right because even though i try to stay fairly up to date i still feel like there's people at sitepen that know an order of magnitude more than i do right because mm-hmm. you know at, at the end of my day i take care of my two very young kids and there are other people that have a chance to actually read all the weekly news and interact with all the different projects and stuff like that i defer to them kind of just by default. And I don't know, maybe that's not the right behavior, but I feel like that happens on a lot of teams. I think actually you were one of the the people that told me, Neil, that everybody has the same amount of time or, or maybe you repeated that to me that, you know, if you have that feeling of inadequacy, like other people know a lot more than you, you just have to keep in mind that people that has have the same amount of years in development as you have put a lot of the same amount of time into it over the well, average. And I think back to when I was in my mid-20s and how much I was up to date on everything, right? Like, I guess that's... How much you felt you were up to date on everything. I felt right? that I was up to date on everything. <laughs> no, but I mean, there. I look at other developers that have similar life situations in me and I, and I think that it's the same there, right? Like, they have the same amount of time. I'm not going to kill myself to catch up on everything. But I, I just think there are some people that, that really have their pulse on what's good. What is going to really propel us to the best engineered software. I think a lot of that is is really not being in tune with everything, but knowing what to ignore. Yeah, a lot of experience comes... There's almost a middle ground, right? Where you want someone that it, that has their... that is up to date on things, but knows what to ignore. I almost feel like as I've become a senior engineer and my responsibilities have become increased, where I'm managing a team, where I'm I'm making sure that the code coming in is of a certain quality that I haven't had time to spend those moments where I have downtime in coding, furthering what's going on in the community, where my work downtime, quote unquote, is spent planning. And and these are all necessary things, right? I'm not saying that I shouldn't be doing these things, but, you know, planning and code reviews and making sure that that people have tasks so that they can do and that the tasks are assigned to the right person and that they have the right support and that sort of stuff. As a junior engineer, I I felt like I didn't have to, I didn't have the weight of the world almost on my shoulders (laughs) and I could go, I could go and spend, you know, 15, 20, 30 minutes here and there learning a new piece of technology or, or a new uh, API or whatever, a new technique. Whereas as a senior engineer, I, I almost feel like I have to know everything. You have to keep the wheel turning. It's all well, on you. Well, and I, I have to use the best practices and what, what I know. And so, like, I'm not able to to branch out and <laughs> and go, hey, let's use this new fangled thing that I've never used. I'm more apt to say, I've done it this way before. I know how long it'll take. Well, you know, kind of what I was talking, what we were talking about before with the time uh, and estimating and such. I'm going to lean more on older practices, so to speak, which may only be a couple years old, but, you know, um, not be able to go and see what are different people doing around the community. That brings us to one of the first ideas when we're talking about single points of failure, right? Is that the person that generally has the big picture view that sees that the forest, right? Sees the broad forest, they tend to miss the trees, right? So when you are assigning work to people, when you say like, we're going to have an API that works kind of like this. It's necessarily where you don't really get into those nitty gritty details about the implementation. You defer a lot of time to someone else that is more responsible for that area of the application. Uh, and that's where one of the breakdowns happens. Yeah, that's where you really need trust to to come in and be a huge factor in that, letting someone go off and and really be you know, in tune with all of the details of, of getting the task done. And you just see it from kind of a, a higher perspective, trusting that they will get the job done and come to you if they have questions or, or need guidance in, in different ways. Yeah. If you're a leader in any organization and, and any large enough organization that you can hand off tasks and responsibilities, you definitely should. And as the leader, you shouldn't be the one micromanaging those outcomes, but you should be guiding the overall vision of the people in charge of those outcomes. Yeah, and I think that's a point of failure, right? Is that um, you might lay out this idea that you think everyone else understands and then not assign individual people to take the next step. Hmm. 
right? And then that's it just breaks down where someone starts working on the API and it's it's vastly different than what you had imagined because they haven't done that the second step and the third step and the fourth step, right? Yeah. I think that's one of the breakdowns is you have a person that knows the big picture, thinks that that's all that needs to be explained. Yeah, communication. And then usually what happens from there is that with that person, or even it might be just a group of people, you know, it might be depending on how big the, the team is, it might be two or three engineers working together, and then everything seems to need to funnel through them. Yeah. And I'm going to say it right here that if you're reviewing that vision in PRs, like PRs are good for informing everybody about what's going on, what code changes are coming. But if you're doing any reviews in your PRs and changing the approach to things, you're missing your design phase. Like you're missing those early phases where you're supposed to have that communication. I completely agree. That gets us to the idea of siloing, right? What we're talking about here is how like one person can get responsible for a lot of things and also siloed, right? Where if that person that understands a project really well, there should be a very short distance between them and the person that is taking on what they've laid out and is starting to work on it. A lot of times what happens is that the distance between the person laying out what needs to be happening and the person implementing it, that knowledge gap is very big. And that's where you end up with what Paul was saying. You end up with these redesigns in PRs because the person that has taken on the task has a, a huge knowledge gap between them and the person that has laid out what they should be doing. As a leader, one of the things you can do, or, or just anybody who has knowledge about something on a team, is to to document your common patterns and approaches. And design phases help with this, as you're saying like, okay, I have this problem, and here's my proposed solution, and I'm going to get buy-in from other team members on how, to, how I want to approach it versus like what they think should be done in like a holistic way. But just forcing that documentation to happen is really imperative, and, and it's something that we don't bump into until we hit communication points like this, where we thought it would go one way, but the PR ended up being completely different and solved a different problem or not the way that we thought it would be solved. When we have those issues pop up, we're missing a communication step, and usually that is some form of documentation or some sort of knowledge transfer that's missing. Yeah, I think one of the big ways we see this is in API design, right, on a lot of projects where we know in general, like, we need to do these create, read, update, delete operations on these objects. And then it's just kind of wild west from there. Even though, like, you know, API design and patterns is such a huge part of projects. But we will see APIs where, uh, even in big products, where a date is returned slightly differently in two different places, right? Or something is a string in one place and a number is in another place, right? Like API design is one of those things that where there's a huge breakdown between the big picture idea and the implementation. One of the things is there's no great solution to that other than to create processes around API design. And processes and documentation. Well, yeah, some documentation, but so I'm not a fan of low-level documentation. Like high-level architectural documentation That's makes what, a lot I'm, of sense. I'm, I'm speaking high-level high level yeah. architectural, yeah. But when you're talking about this API needs to always return a string, like that's something that needs to be reinforced by a DSL, some For sort sure. of like language that can, or TypeScript. You can make compile types that the server and the client need to adhere to. But, you know, those are the two differentiators. Like if it's a low-level thing, it needs to have process around it. And if it's high-level architecture, it needs to have documentation around it. I've definitely been on projects where they have a, so much documentation that they might as well had none. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Because then you spend all your time updating that that low-level documentation anytime there's an API change. It's, it's It gets ridiculous. What can you do to mitigate that if it's not documentation? And like in, in the example of creating an API and knowing that it should return or follow similar patterns as maybe what's been implemented in another area by a different developer, how do you make sure that that knowledge is shared there's it's mostly about process like are you, are you going to put a test around it in your scenario are are both the front end and the back end running typescript so you can share types in, in a way are you using protocol buffers in a way to make sure that you can generate types from protocol buffers but then your server also adheres to those those buffers like you need to develop a process and there's no one descriptive way of doing it but you need to develop a process that makes sure that the computer is in charge or the, the robots are in charge of making sure that those fine details are adhered to because humans suck at it. 
I guess the scenario that I'm I'm picturing in my head is would not be caught by TypeScript or by any of that. And it's it's where you have like you develop a full API, like a full controller that's doing things one way. And then you have another developer who is doing another route on that API in a very similar way, but not quite the same because maybe they don't know what the other developer is doing. And so that one API that you developed has all of its types laid out perfectly and everything, but I'm not using those types because I'm creating something that is almost the same, but different, but I want to follow similar patterns. Yeah. Again, you need to have ways of unifying that. So if you're using TypeScript, you need to share types and that type needs to say like each individual value, declare a type for something and have it equal string, declare a type for something and have it equal number and only use those higher level types when you're referring to anything that you're returning back. If you want that level of unification, that's the best way of doing something if you have TypeScript on both sides. Yeah, you can have a, you can have an interface that just covers one type of property. But as you're defining that pattern, like before that pattern is established, how do you recognize that that's a pattern that could be used in both places? Because a lot of people will write that whole pattern, will implement this whole the whole API rather than having that uh, step in between, right? That's kind of what I'm I'm curious about getting to with this topic is I think that in a lot of situations, people will do a ton of work and then pass it off to this higher level engineer thinking that they'll just fix it, right? And you say like, well, how do we stop that? How do we make it so that the distance between the two is smaller and that we're not asking one person to just fix everything that we might do wrong? <laughs> Ask the world's largest question. <laughs> Well, again, I think it goes back to like, you know, documenting architecture and high level and having processes that uh, address your issues on, on the lower end, like on, on the lower, the detail side. So the, then the question for you, Paul, since you're kind of providing an answer, my, my devil's advocate question would be, who's then enforcing that and making sure that those processes are being followed? Yeah, so that, that needs to be something that the entire team contributes to. And so there's a number of ways of doing that on the high end and on the the knowledge end. And then on the computer end, like the details side, they need to be reinforced by continuous deployment, continuous delivery, and continuous integration. I mean, the robots need to be in charge of the details and the people need to be in charge of the vision and the overall thing. So on the vision side, one of the ways of doing that is if you're very aggressive, you create a somewhat flat organization where your roles cycle. So for instance, if you have a lead on the project for a couple months, that leads hands off to another lead that's also on the team that can then lead the project going forward. And so one of the things that that forces is it forces a handoff, which requires documentation, it requires communication. And for continuity, any kind of continuity plan requires the ability to, to make that handoff. So it's a forcing function for enforcing, you know, the, the ability to share knowledge. Like CEOs have continuity plans. Like if they're hit by a bus, how does our business continue without our leadership? And in the same way, teams should have that too. They should be able to hand off and have a continuity plan when you lose a lead and not just scramble. And if you enforce that process in, in, a, in a regular way and you cycle leads and you cycle that duty, then it doesn't overload one person as being the single point of failure and it enforces that good practice. I think you got to kind of what I was trying to kind of push us towards, which is that in a lot of organizations, the attitude is that uh, let's say we're trying to figure out how data objects work, right? In a lot of organizations, that'll be deferred to the highest level person or the person in charge of it. And your suggestion of like, well, why don't we decide that together? I mean, I think that's a, a much better way to do it. I think that deferring all like, quote unquote, big decisions to the head honcho is one of the big uh, breakdowns that, that that leads to a lot of these uh, problems that we see. Yeah, there's a difference between expertise and roles necessary on a team, as well as salary and level. All of those are should be separate things. But when you combine them into one super role, then that's when you get that level of siloing and a single point of failure. Try to shift the roles so everybody on the team, even if they're at different levels, has the ability to step into that role in some function, and it forces you to communicate how those roles are supposed to operate, and everybody gains knowledge from it. Yeah, and like having that, knowing that there's like, for every decision that you need to make internally, 
knowing that it's been made at a large organizational level makes it so that you don't start making these guesses. And, you know, you start making these guesses and that leads to a lot of the, the stuff that we see uh, in terms of, of drift between different individual people. Yeah. Directors and, and managers of teams should want to enforce these practices as well, because nothing is worse when you lose like your one lead on the project that knows everything and keeps it all together. Like, <laughs> like there's nothing more dangerous than not having a continuity plan uh, on a product that has the spotlight in your company. Yeah, like it, it seems sensible to have one person that's like the decision maker, right? But when that person is not there to make the decisions, you don't want it to completely break down. They don't, you don't need it. Like, I think if you take the decisions away from everybody else, right, then, then they never learn to make those decisions. Exactly. And if you don't allow people to fail and you're always either doing things for them or cleaning up after them and you don't allow them to fail and clean up after themselves, then they're not going to learn. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or make them feel like they don't have the capability of making a decision, right? That, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Or the responsibility. Like, exactly. Right. You yeah. know, if Absolutely. people don't feel responsible for a product, they they won't act responsible for it. Exactly, yep. And I think that that's one of the weird, you know, we're trying to kind of nail down what is it about different organizations that, that leads to some of this stuff. And I think that's one of them is people really think that senior engineers are way smarter than junior engineers or way smarter than someone that keeps up to date on all the latest news is way smarter than someone that isn't able to. But I think that's just wrong, right? Like, if someone presents their idea and someone else has a chance to look at it, like, if those roles were flipped, I feel like it would be the same outcome, right? Like, you might be right and you might be wrong, no matter what your circumstance in life. I mean, you're always going to have some privilege that is granted to you that puts your idea above others or below others. So, I mean, yes and no. I, I just want to address that. The joke uh, we made we've been making a lot about the 10x engineer, right? That person is just as liable to come up with a bad idea for data handling as a junior engineer who's Googling for the latest processes on how to do date handling, right? Like, ultimately, someone should present the approach that they think is best, and it should be bounced off of someone else. And just that act of bouncing it off someone else should help resolve some of that. But it doesn't I guess what I'm saying is it doesn't matter what direction it comes from in terms of meritocracy. You can have an idea that comes from the top that's bad and an idea that comes from from someone with less experience that's really good. That's fair. And I think when, when you're working in a team, you need to make decisions as a team. And then when the rubber hits the road and a decision doesn't work out, then you need to accept responsibility as a team rather than finger point. Oh, yeah, yes, for sure. And I think that builds trust in a team especially the leaders on the team, the senior engineers, the project managers, the, the business analysts. Now, now, sometimes there are problems that do need to have fingers pointed, right? That I'm not, I'm not saying that never point fingers. But when something is decided as a team, it needs to be owned as a team. And uh, when you can build that trust, then you're going to get better ideas out of it as well. And you're going to have that ability to sit in a meeting and discuss ideas like what you and Paul are talking about and come up with the best idea, the best approach without somebody thinking that their head's going to roll. They're going to be less likely to stay quiet because I don't want to offer this idea because I'm the low guy, low person on the totem pole or on the, on the ladder. And if my idea sucks, then I'm going to be the one axed. And so, you know, I, I think that's that's very important. It's hard to do because I think it's so ingrained in us that the seniors are the smartest people or they're the ones that need to make the decisions. And I'll just go along for the ride. Yeah. And that's not true. <laughs> no, it's not. Cause for sure. I, like yeah. as a senior engineer, there, there's days where I feel like I'm the dumbest person at the, co at the company. <laughs> you know, like... What am I? What am I doing? Is it now that that's not an endorsement to to take me out of the senior? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, there's there's days where it's like like you were saying, Neil, you have two kids, I've got three kids. You really, you know, do. Th that that's part of it. When you do have another responsibility of any sort, it doesn't have to be kids. You learn to focus on what matters, 
And you don't chase as many things as you do when you're a younger engineer. At least I chased a whole bunch of projects that just fell down because I was chasing too many things or I wanted to explore a lot of things. And that period of exploration is is useful. But as you get older and you you start getting more responsibility, if you didn't have it already, then it, it really gives you perspective on being able to focus on where important things are and being able to understand decisions that your leaders are making when they're saying like, okay, well, we need tests around this thing, but we don't need a billion tests. Like we need, we need just the right tests to gain confidence in our ability to release. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or, or, Hey, this feature is buggy and it doesn't work a hundred percent in the way that we want it to, but there's other features that are worse off that we need to devote our time to. Like, not solving all the problems and and having that focus and having that perspective is something that, at least personally, I gained as I grew up as an engineer. Yeah, for sure. Even saying, hey, this feature is really buggy and we need to put off features to make this feature better. The ability to, to say that as well. But yeah, I, I completely agree with you, Paul. Um, that 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 aspect of what is really important, you're not going to have it when you first start, but as you work with the team, that's going to come. Senior engineers need to work with the the younger generation to foster that as well. It took a couple engineers pulling me aside at certain times of my career and saying, "Hey, look, you got to get your head in this," you know. And then they didn't just leave me; they 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 helped me along. <laughs> yeah, <know? laughs> it was it wasn't it wasn't a, it wasn't a spanking. It was it was like a hey, look, you need to get your head in the game. Let's work on a plan. Here's what's worked for me. Let's get you some help that you need. And it was it was really good. I think to a certain degree, mentoring helps with with the siloing, being able to take people from your team aside and and uh, work with them to bring them into a role that you're in or that you you see them uh, transitioning into, that really helps as well. I think that really helps me articulate kind of one of the next things I wanted to talk about, which is... I think that we can do some things that make that worse, right? Like we can make things that make people feel less capable. So we wanted to talk about this idea that like you can end up with a person in your company that feels responsible for the code base, right? Every single PR needs to go through them. uh, And you start to feel like no code can be approved unless it goes through them. And I think that that is... Part of what we've been touching on to begin with, which is that you need to tell more, I don't want to say junior, because uh, we keep saying that, but you, you need to tell the the person that isn't taking responsibility for the big picture uh, of the project that they can do uh, high level stuff, right? Because I think that the reason that one person ends up feeling responsible for all the PRs is because they see these little ways that people aren't following the way that they think it should be done, and they might be correct for it. And then they start to add comments that are kind of, that can come across as condescending. They can start rewriting code sometimes if the PRs are are really a lot different than than what they were expecting. Uh, And I feel like that's happening because there are people that feel like they can't do work up to the level that they should be doing. And they start talking to the this person less they start um, not checking in with them the way that they should, right? So it's kind of a snowballing of, of the problems you've already been talking about. Yeah, and some some of the like the rewriting code, I've been guilty of that before, where it's like, okay, I'm just going to land this, and then I'll go back and and rewrite it because there's you know X, Y, and Z wrong, and I just need to move this person to the next thing. And uh, a lot of times for me. When that happens, it usually has to do with like a like there's a deadline coming up. Um, so you know it, it's not always about you know there's there's not always this nef- I don't think that you were saying this, but but there's not always this nef- nefarious you know trying to keep somebody down. But given the constraints that of of our industry, right? I've been totally guilty of that. Of it'll be faster if I just do this, right? <laughs> but then of course, then of course you create a bottleneck of yourself. What I'm saying is that there's a big enough drift between the code they've submitted to you and what yeah. you expect oh, yeah. Yeah. at this point that, that you feel a need to rewrite it. Um, so I think that, that that's like, we see this happen a lot. And I think that it is an indication that that these other steps further down have gone on. 
Yes. So I, I think what's important is when things like that start to happen, that that you go in with the perspective of saying that most anybody on the team should be able to work on at least 80% of any project. You know, 20% of the code or less is potentially going to be very specialized. Like maybe it involves video, special expertise. Maybe it involves something that only, a, a you know, a certain optimization that only a small group can do. But on the whole, 80% of your project should be done by anybody. And so if you're at a point where you believe that a person is is not up to that, then you need to look at your organization and say, well, why don't we have the processes to support this person? Like, why are they at this level where I, I need them to be at the point where they can manage 80% of this with less less direction? How instead are we operating that, you know, I feel like I'm responsible for everything and I can't bring these people up to speed in a place that I feel comfortable. And this is the same feeling you have when you're missing processes that support your other developers as when you have a lack of tests or other things that let make you feel less confident in pushing to production. It's the same feeling and you need to address it in the same way in providing processes around people or code to provide solutions that can get them to the point where you're not a single point of failure and they have support that they need. And you need to take a hard look at your organization when those things happen. I think one of those things could be possibly implementing like pair programming. Uh, I spoke about mentoring earlier. You know, if you've got somebody that isn't up to speed, maybe they just came on the team, et cetera, et cetera. That yeah, could be a, ramping them up. What's that? Yeah, just Ra uh, yeah, ramping. How do you, yeah. What, what's your ramp up story like? You know, I thought you said how? wrapping them up, and I'm like wrapping them, up in, <laughs> wrapping in, them up in like your an army. No, like like with a hug. It's like a hazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like a hazing. Um, but you know, just sitting down and and having them work with you on a feature or a defect or a story, and they can see how how things kind of go within the team. When you review PRs, I know Neil, you talked about where you know something may come across negatively. What I've found helpful is when I'm reviewing a PR, rather than just say what I want, I found it more helpful if I explain why I want the change. This is good, but it's different than what we've done in the other places in the in the code. Or so I'd like you to to go back and and look at that and follow this high level process, etc. Or yeah, and when things like that happen, though, you got to think like. Why did they design it this way? And why wasn't there the guide rails that would lead them to right. the desired result? Sure. No, I, I, I agree with that. I agree with that. Yeah. Because I'm a strong believer. If it's in the PR and you're doing design changes in the PR, yeah. you missed your design phase. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. My thought about the pair programming thing was just like, if, you, if you're going to rewrite someone's code, why not just be like, hey, <laughs> we should do screen sharing while I rewrite your code. Yeah, right? let's do this together. Yeah. Yeah. PR reviews is a great way of doing PR reviews. 100%. This also makes me think, um, one of the projects that I'm on right now, I've had a number of times where uh, I've looked at some, you know, to try to get an idea for how, how something should be done. I've looked at like how someone else did it, right? And then I've been like, wait a minute, I should ask if we've made a formal decision on this. And more often than not, I would go to our team lead and I'd say, like, we made a formal decision on this. And they'd be like, yes, right? And I think that it is kind of one of the big ways to remove that is, you know, questioning, if I'm making a decision, have we always have we already made this decision? And also having formalized some of the decisions that you've made. So, like, I've seen it, I've been seeing it work really well recently, where as I've been making decisions, I've been able to defer to an actual design level decision. And I could have easily submitted a PR that had missed a lot of that stuff, right? Like I see how, how easy that is to do. Yeah, that's totally your design phase. Like if you enforce a design phase that says either we have a documented pattern for solving this, or it's something that's new, and then we need, that means that there's risk there in that we'll, you know, take longer than our estimates and things like that. It enforces that documentation and enforces that early design. And as an engineer, we want to get faster at solving those problems, especially common problems. So it should, again, hopefully, having a design phase enforce that documentation of design and enforce like a faster turnover of identifying where issues are ahead of time. And then it also unify your team around those solutions. 
so that you're not getting them in your PRs, you know, different approaches. Yeah, I mean, yeah, your design phase can be fairly interactive as long as you have, right? Like as long as you don't just immediately start programming, right? <laughs> um, What's wrong with that? You, <laughs> <laughs> well, you, nothing you know, you, for a while sometimes. Yeah, it depends. <laughs> But you can make it so that you can, you know, you can identify decision points. You can um, raise a PR that is like, here's how I think it should be done. I mean, once again, not doing your entire coding, right? But like, we're talking about like dates in the API, right? Like, you can submit a PR that's like, here's how I think dates should be handled in the in the API. And then you can point to that discussion, like you can point to that PR as the example of how you should be doing that stuff. You know, we're talking about like this middle ground between wasting all your time on documentation and and design and stuff like that and you can waste all your time on coding without it and i think people should have the attitude that like there is a middle ground but you need to be purposeful about it you need to make sure that you point at the different decisions that you've made as you go you need to make sure you update that to say like well we made this initial decision and we've changed our minds since then here's why you can see some examples here you can read about it yeah patterns and anti-patterns right like as a as an implementation note you should have your patterns and anti-patterns defined within your framework. And then the architectural side at high-level architecture should be documented in some way so you can bring people into the organization and ramp them up on your your architecture. And that leads into your patterns and anti-pattern solutions. But then the low-level stuff is the stuff you need to avoid documenting other than maybe comments and code and, and things that are very localized Um for fear of having too much documentation or spending too much time in the documentation phase. We were kind of talking in terms of the PR about, and Paul talked about this as we were planning, that there are there are some people who feel a sense of apathy towards what they're working on. And, and I think that, you know, we've been talking about our first point, we talked about how people they don't think to ask if they can make decisions because they don't feel capable. When we talked about, you know, when they were submitting PRs, that um, they expect their PR to be rewritten, right? They just, uh, they think that it's just going to happen. So they they develop the sense of of kind of apathy about their approach. And I think that it also really ramps up on the, uh, whoever's leading the effort, whoever's kind of feels in charge. I think that leads them to really feeling a sense of being overworked as well. And, and that's kind of, it's one of the things that we really wanted to touch on as well is that, you often end up, uh, because of everything that we've discussed, it's snowballing into having a lead that is so protective of their time that they almost refuse to help other people. Right. Or they or they just end up not caring. What's interesting is that as the lead gets overworked and the people that are working with the lead submit their PRs and then they, they submit them in this, this is good enough attitude both sides kind of get ap become more and more apathetic it increases that silo between the two people yeah right? for sure you have a you have people writing code that are like well i'm not why do i even bother they're never going to think it's good enough i don't really get to make any decisions and then you have the other side where it, there's someone's just, just like uh you know they're going to submit it i'm just gonna have to rewrite it or like i'm gonna have to add all these comments and so you know you start to feel like you can't if you do need to make a decision, if you're like, oh, well, how did we approach column layout? You don't feel comfortable going to that person because you don't feel like you're at their level. You don't feel like your work's good enough. You feel like they don't think your work's good enough. None of that might be true, right? But it might be just because of these small decision, the inflection points that happened uh, over the course of a long period of time that have, that have opened up this gap between people. So what can you do if you see that? What can you do to mitigate that? If you see the team going down that path or, or individuals going down that path. I think one thing is that the lead and the, the project managers should work together to recognize people for following best practices. If I was trying to encourage someone that, that felt like they weren't um, necessarily firing all cylinders, right? Um, one of the things that I would prioritize is um, someone that is that asks questions along all those decision points, right? So... Uh, back to the API, if we don't have a date formatter and they're like, well, how do we, do we have a standard way of formatting dates? Like the person that asks that question, I would say, you know, thank you for asking that. The person that, that documents it, the person that writes an interface for it, 
Um, you know, in, in the project that I'm on, we uh, when we're working on older components, we oftentimes do a little bit of upkeep on them with things that we've learned over the years. The person that does that, the person that that writes a unit test that is as good as it needs to be and not any better, or is willing to spend the extra time to, to write a functional test on something that's, that's really important. I, th- I think that's where I would really reward someone is on those little, I mean, it's at back to engineering, right? They're doing the things that that fix the uncertainty related to the project, right? Like, and that, I yeah. mean, maybe that's the way we just talk about efficiency, risk. right? Yeah. Yeah. Someone that reduces risk, right? That might be the best way to explain kind of what you're talking about in terms of efficiency is, is that they're making things, they're making things better for their project. And then the other side is the person that helps scale, you know, that writes tools and solutions and patterns. If, if you are listening right now and you work on a backend and you do not have a pattern on how to manage dates written down somewhere that everybody can point to, <laughs> do that right now. <laughs> <laughs> and time zones, man, there's lots of, oh, I hate time. Yeah. I hate time zones. Yeah. <laughs> how do you save the date in the database? Yes. How do you send it out over the wire? And how do you deal with it? How do you how deal do you it on the front it? end? Yeah. One of the things that's interesting about this discussion is I keep kind of going back to pair programming. I keep thinking that, the, that there, there are a lot of, of individual skills that I don't think you need to do pair programming day to day. But talking about when you're going to rewrite someone's PR, bring them into pair programming. If uh, what, what was it that Paul just said? Write down your dates. I'm going to say it again. Do your dates. <laughs> Write yeah, down no, uh, someone, <laughs> someone that someone that really likes uh, rewriting, uh, writing reusable stuff. Right, like that person when they are um, saying, "Well, I'm going to I'm going to create a set of interfaces that really nail down our reusable stuff." Bring someone else in, especially someone that you might think might be struggling with it or isn't or is submitting a lot of PRs that don't really respect it. Right. Say like I'm about to to do a bunch of stuff that I feel like I'm good at. You should come in and, and watch me do this, right? You should in- include those people and bring them up to 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 speed to to remove that silo, remove that single point of failure. Yeah, and you could even do this if you're on a team and you're not the lead, if, especially if you're a person that feels apathetic and you found something important that you want to tackle. Bring in another person that may also feel apathetic and attack this from the side. But you need buy-in and trust from the whole team because you can't just be like, "Oh, I I watched Neil do this the whole time and I learned a lot," but we got one widget done between the two of us for the day. <laughs> well, but you know, you have to you have to create something that, that that then becomes design work, like Paul is saying, right? Like it needs to it needs to become something where like we made these decisions; these are why we made them. Here's the output that we have. But yeah, I, being able to pull those the ranks together like that, I think, is super interesting. Yeah, that's actually tough because that's something you get as you you learn about again learning what's important to focus on. And, you know, if you pair with somebody else and you create something that's not just a solution for that widget, but also creates a pattern or a tool or something that scales your effort beyond just yourself, then that adds a lot of value. And and when we look at what metrics are used to reward people, those things need to be included as, as your metrics and reinforced. And when we say when we say pair, we talked earlier about pairing on, on PRs as well. And I think a lead, I think, would be very or should be very open to somebody approaching them and saying, hey, can I can I pair with you on these PRs that you've got stacked up so that I can learn what you're doing and so that, that I can help you out and take some of this load off of you? And then that person that, that's learned that, have somebody pair with them later on. And then you're distributing all this this load and you've taken the single point of failure, and now you've got three, right? Nothing's better than pairing on PRs, because if you are assigned a PR that you have to like review, you have to like ramp up on it and get up to speed, versus if you're pairing with a person that, that put in that PR, they can say, this is what I did, these are the important things, this is why I did them, and then just take you through it, and it's so much faster, it's worth both your time to, to make that happen. Well, yeah, and that kind of goes to one of the things that I see emerging from our discussion is that um, really focusing on decision points is such a good way to improve the efficiency of your process, right? Um, you know, you're, if you're pairing on someone's PR saying like, well, why did you make this decision? Why did you make this decision? Should we formalize this decision? Should we not formalize this decision, right? Like saying these are decisions 
we made now, are they applicable later? Can we formalize those in, in a bigger process? And we even, I, I think a lot of the, um, the approaches and the ideas we've been talking about, we, uh, Sitepen presents them to a lot of people under uh, the topic of inner source, right? Where you treat uh, your internal development as if you were working on an open source project. Because we've been talking about PRs, we've been talking about um, code reviews, pair programming, stuff like that. Um, a lot of these things are going to require you to actually set up a set of tooling that would look like what you would have if you were working on an open source project. Uh, and when when you say tooling, you mean the the processes surrounding your continuous integration, the testing tools that you use, how to write tests, those sorts of things. Correct, Neil? Yeah, I mean, nowadays, if you just get your team on GitHub, th- like that goes such a long way towards adding some formalization uh, uh, in terms of what you do, right? Like creating an issue, running a wiki, creating pull requests and, and having discussions around pull requests. If if you can do those things, it's going to get you a lot further than trying to uh, just kind of play it by ear <laughs> and roll with the punches. Yeah, and, and you can even set up like a base project with your your Travis config or GitHub Action config, your issue templates for GitHub, all of that boilerplate stuff that every team should be using. Um, you can set that up in a in a base template, clone that repo, and push it up as a new project, and then yeah. or find one find one similar to what you want. Yeah, exactly. That, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But then but then standardize that across your across your company across your team. So are we going to try to wrap up why this might be happening on various teams? <laughs> I I mean, I think it comes down to, you know, you're not taking the time to evaluate your processes and and make things better every day. Like it it starts with small it starts with small changes. Like you you can't just solve all the problems at once and and assume that they're solved. You can't just, you know, provide a reward and and make get everybody on the same page and, and then assume that we're good now or or <laughs> provide the reward one time and then just go back to what you were doing beforehand yeah you can't just be like oh we need to put this project on hold because we need to write a bunch of tests and add a bunch of process documentation and then we're good <laughs> like that doesn't happen like that's not the solution the, the solution is to to really take a look at why you're not investing in the processes that make your team better, make your code better, and make your processes better. And, you know, are you under strain or stress? Like, are there business reasons that you can't devote the necessary time to good engineering practice? Or are there some other reasons? Like, is there a person that is unrelenting in letting go of their expert? areas are are people unwilling to cycle responsibility or are people not allowing others to feel responsible for sections of code that they should be again 20 percent of your code ish might be worthy of protecting but by and large 80 percent of it 100 percent of your people should be able to work on 80 percent of your code for sure no i totally agree with that and you have to think about if you think you don't have time to implement these processes then you're not preparing for what could happen. If your single point of failure leaves the company, then you know one day, or he or she does something unethical and is summarily removed, and there's no time to to write any of that down. And if you're not preparing for that, then you're not being realistic with your with your software. You're not being realistic with life, and. If you're not investing in those processes, if you're not investing in mitigating those circumstances, and you know the circumstance we're talking about today is the, the single point of failure. If you're if you're not willing to invest in that, then at some point it's going to come back to bite you, and you're going to have, you know that that non investment is <laughs> is going to eat into uh, what you did invest in. I like what Paul said about like there there being. A bunch of small little decisions you need to make every day, right? Because I, I think that that we have this the situation where it's obvious that by not setting up this, the trust between different people, right, by making someone feel like they're not as capable as someone else, you erode that a little bit every day. 
you widen the gap between someone that's apathetic and someone that feels ultimately responsible. Um, and then that snowballs out of, out of, out of control, right? But those are just small things that happen every day. That's not a big thing that happens all of a sudden. And I think that Paul nails it on the head, which is that like, we need to make sure we don't do those things. And we need to make sure that we do small little maintenance, um, procedures every single day, every decision that we make, we need to make sure that we do something with it, whatever it is. We need to make sure that, uh, we, uh, include each other in, in really, really little ways every day, because I think that the, the problems become really big one step at a time and we have to fix them with really small decisions one step at a time. But yeah, we don't, we can't just go ahead and like, oh, we have tests, everything's fixed. Cause it's just going to happen again. We're just going to drift further apart again. We're just going to, those, those small little decisions are going to pile up by a complete lack of documentation eventually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or rotten documentation. Yeah. When decisions aren't, when it's not kept up to date or yeah. anything else. Yeah. It, it's a process. It's not, it's not a one-time thing. Mm-hmm. I agree. <laughs> he is, he is nodding his head. And that's why we brought him in. <laughs> no, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think it comes down to setting up the processes that help inform the decisions that need to be made. It's it's when Brian brought up tooling earlier, it's it is setting up tooling as a way to inform decisions so that when when a question comes up, you can refer to to the tools that you have in, in place to get to the the decision that a majority of the time everyone would get to anyway. So it helps you make better decisions on your own and then reach out if you need uh, help. If it, if it's kind of falls out of the, the 80% range. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, I think an understanding that tooling isn't going to fix the process. It might be a fix, right? But, Mm -hmm. but we can't just say, Oh, you know, if we put, yeah, we have to work at this. We we always have to continually look at the process and look at the decisions we made in the past and, and see if they're still viable for today. Absolutely. Yeah. The it's communication. Work. Like, yeah. Communication lines have to be open. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah Tooling. It all boils down to the trust from there. Yeah. Tooling's great for managing details, but process and communication and, and you know, documenting your decisions and, and all of that is for managing people. Well, I think that's a great place to end. Guys, thanks for sitting down and and talking about this and kicking around some ideas. As always, uh, check out the blog, see what we're up to. And uh, until next time, stay type safe. Thanks for listening to the TalkScript podcast. You can round out your TalkScript experience by viewing our show notes, listening to past episodes, subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, and of course, following us on Twitter at TalkScript. We record new episodes every other week. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of TalkScript, a superset of a podcast about JavaScript. We've got a good thing going on. Bop, bop, bop.